When you hear this story of how Paul Wood went from delinquent to doctor of psychology, you'll see that people can really dramatically change. It's no wonder that he's in high demand as a speaker, inspiring leaders of Fortune 500 companies right through to at-risk teens. This author, professional speaker and Genos AI coach shares lessons on mental fitness, resilience and how to turn adversity to advantage. He speaks from deep, dark personal experience and with his psychology and Genos credentials to boot, you'll find no one more interesting or compelling than our guest today, Dr. Paul Wood. Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Marie. And I'd like to introduce you to Paul Wood, my good colleague and friend for many years. Fantastic to have you on the show, Paul. G'day. Oh, it is such a pleasure, Ben. And I'll tell you this right now. I know that you're like a humble guy and all of this sort of stuff, but I've got to say, <laughs> you have had a massive positive influence on my life in a way that you probably aren't actually aware of. You know, I've got to tell you, my exposure to emotional intelligence through Genos, through yourself, radically transformed my professional trajectory. Really did change my life because for me, it was like a, it was like the, the light that I saw on the road to Damascus where I went, this is what I'm about. This is where I add value. This is where it connects. And my whole professional trajectory has really been really positively influenced by coming across you and what you do. So again, I just want to acknowledge that. That is so nice. Thank you, That's Paul. That's so nice, Respect. Paul, of you to share. I'm going to cut it out, of course. Yeah. He's heard it now. We don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to, to tell the world that you, Ben, we've got to keep him grounded, you see, Paul. Oh, yeah, well, true, true. Uh, I don't want him to get too big for his But isn't it funny, though, right? Because, like, you know, Ben, I mean, you're like all of us, right? You just go through your day and you just do what you do and you have no idea just how big an impact you can actually have on other people through your influence, through your interactions, through the small things that you might do that you might have no memory of. And I mean, for me, again, coming across emotional intelligence as a concept, and particularly as an applied concept by Genos, where it's all about the demonstration of behavior, not some, you know, like hidden internal thing that you can't really pin down. You know, mm. for me, that really did transform stuff professionally. So I just wanted. That's really that. nice of you. That's actually really nice of mm. you to share. And um, I, I can't. You told me, Marie, no question is off the table. 100%. So you say this about. I heard about Genos, and it had massive influence. Did you hear about it in jail? And <laughs> on that. Can we start way back? Yeah. Tell us your tell us your story. Yeah. I mean, look, I know that's just a stock standard question you ask all your guests. <laughs> but um, Never. No, I, I didn't. I, I actually I, I came across Genos subsequent to being in prison when I was released and I went and worked for a company that was Opera Consulting Group and was the New Zealand distributor of the Genos products and that's where I came across it. But yeah, I suppose we should actually go back and address that whole. Let's go back. Piece, right? Let's explain that. Rather than leave that as just like a, just a throwaway comment. <laughs> Everyone's hanging now. Like we've like, got HR what? managers and learning and development officers going. Tell us the prison story and ditch the EO for a minute. So well, let's let's go back. Tell us about yeah. your your journey. I'm in my mid forties. I was born in the late seventies. Growing up in the eighties in New Zealand. You know, it was a period in time where there were some 
very anti-EI messages, you know, some very unemotionally intelligent messages around what it meant Mm. to be a man. And for me growing up, I grew up with these ideas that I shouldn't experience any emotions I'd associate with vulnerability and weakness. And as a result of that, when I experienced them, I didn't manage them because I thought they were indicative of there being something wrong with me. I didn't realize they were part of the normal human experience. You know, in the area I grew up in, the only unpleasant emotion that it was okay to demonstrate was anger, because at least anger wasn't weak. At least it wasn't vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It was powerful. And I grew up in an area where the only things that were valued for boys were being good at sports or being tough. And the emphasis in my household was very much on the being tough, but I was one of four boys we all grew up doing a lot of fighting. Uh, we all grew up expecting that we would join the infantry as soon as we're old enough. If we were living the dream, we'd get into the special forces. That's what I grew up expecting I'd try and do with my life. And as a kid, I grew up thinking that violence was the measure of the man. You know, being mm-hmm. capable of violence, never backing down, those were the things that you aspired to. And mm-hmm. when I hit my teenage years and I started to experience all these emotions like anxiety and self-doubt and all of this, I thought there was something wrong with me. Mm. Because, again, I grew up with this mental model, with this idea that men don't feel that stuff. And so I didn't have the skills to cope with those, and I ended up doing what a lot of people in my area did, and that was alcohol and drugs. So from about the age of 12, I was self-medicating to cope with the challenges of life and the emotions I didn't think I was supposed to have through getting drunk, through getting stoned. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just about coping either. You know, like like a lot of young boys, I was attracted to chaos. You know, I was attracted to the excitement and I wanted to fit in and I wanted to belong. I can't tell you how many bad choices I made in my early life that were really about wanting to be accepted and to belong. You know, and it's this, this this fundamental drive we have as members of the human species to want to be part of the tribe. And unfortunately, you know, I wasn't in an area and around people who had a positive focus or outlet for that energy. And, you know, I mean, I'm 45 now, and I wish I could tell you I don't care anymore about being accepted or belonging. I don't care if people like me. But if I'm honest with you, you know, I, I still want people to like me. And it makes it difficult to talk about my story because I know there'll be lots of people who won't like me as a result of it. But the reality is, is, you know, when it comes to that authenticity piece, which the the genus model is so big on, you know, this is how I live my purpose and add value in life. I could quietly just carry on with my professional career without talking about imprisonment, without talking about drug addiction and all of those things. Mm. But the reality is, is this is how I can add value to others by being authentic and, and being um, courageous enough to share stuff that doesn't make me look good. And the reality is, is when I grew up, I used to think courage was all about this never backing down, never fear, mm. being able to embrace whatever physical risk was involved. But the reality is, is you know, one of the biggest transformative things in my life was recognizing that courage wasn't about that at all. Courage was about mm. having the ability to own and manage those unpleasant emotions and do what was right despite them. Do the right mm. thing even though there is fear and anxiety. You know, courage mm. is not the absence of fear, it's the management of it, right? But when I was younger, I didn't mm. see any of that. And you know, I went through my teenage years and 
I got further and further into drug use. And when I was 18, I caught up with a drug dealer and there was nothing unusual in that. There was a dispute. Uh, there was an attempted sexual assault on their part. And I took actions which unnecessarily ended their life. And, you know, I, I do want to be really clear about that. You know, there was a point where I had defended myself and I could have allowed them to leave my house. And instead, I chose to take actions which unnecessarily ended their life. And as a result of that, I ended up in the New Zealand prison system for the next 10 years, 10 months. So from 18 to 29. And oh, my gosh, I'll tell you, as an 18 year old, you can't conceptualize a decade. You haven't had enough life experience. So for me, when I got told I was going to serve a minimum of 10 years, for me, that was forever. You know, as a 45-year-old, if you tell me 10 years, I, I, I know what that feels like. I know what that is. But as an 18-year-old, that's forever. And so you know, at that point in my life, this was my new life. And it was something that I had to come to grips with pretty quick. Uh, I, um, you know, went into prison. And prison is a very challenging environment. You know, I, I remember walking in when I was first remanded in custody after I'd been to court and... I remember walking into this old British-style prison, which was located in Wellington in New Zealand, where I was. And these British-style prisons, you don't have bars on the fronts of the cells. Like, you know, you often think of when you think of prison and you see on TV, that's a North American design. These old British prisons, instead, what they have is they have a big steel door that lets you in and out of the cell. And in the middle of that steel door, you have a peephole, otherwise known as a Judas hole. And this is for the guards to, you know, check on you periodically to do a muster, make sure you're there, you haven't killed yourself, that type of stuff. And I remember walking in that mm. first night with other people remanded in custody. By the time you get in there, everyone else is already locked up for the night. The end of your day in high, medium to maximum security prisons in New Zealand is normally between 3 and 4 p.m. That's when you get your last meal for the day and you're locked up. And I remember walking in there and all you saw on either side of you is you walked with trepidation. Isn't that a great word? Trepidation, eh? When you walked with that into this wing, all you saw on either side of you were these eyes staring out of the cells at you, and people kick these big steel doors, and it makes a massive intimidating sound. And some people are good enough to consider themselves the welcoming committee. And the welcoming committee in prison, like any welcoming committee, they like to offer words of support and encouragement. They like to yell out things like, kill yourself, hang yourself, I'll see you in the morning. And that was my welcome to the New Zealand prison environment. And I'll tell you this right now, I didn't see it this way at the time, but this was going to be an awesome personal development opportunity for me. Yeah. Okay, that I have a million questions <laughs> that I, I'm kind of wishing this was a true crime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so many inappropriate questions running through oh. my mind right now that I will I will ask you later. But the <laughs> The, you've had you've had an amazing. I mean, you, you're a doctor now. You do amazing work. You're changing lives. You've obviously changed your life. When you look at the people you met in prison, how many of them were able? Like, firstly, did you make friends? And secondly, how many people were able to turn their life around in the way that you did? Yeah, nice, nice. Well, look, I mean, the reality is, is when I went into prison, I knew a lot of the people in prison because the lifestyle I'd led up to that point was what's technically called a, a criminogenic lifestyle, an antisocial lifestyle, mm. you know, and prison was just sort of seen as path, path of the course in terms of a lot of people who mm. I grew up with. 
So, you know, part of the irony is, and it's a terrible bloody thing, is that by the time I ended up in prison, I was well prepared for prison. You know, it was the same people I'd hung out with. It was the same style of life. It was the same rules, just in a more extreme version. I tell you this right now, I've got two boys. I've got a five-year-old and eight-year-old, and they are not growing up being prepared for prison. They're growing up where we will do everything we can to encourage them and instill in them the capability to be functional members of society who have meaningful relationships with other people and a realistic Mm -hmm. understanding of the human experience that enables you to deal with the challenge and still get on with doing what matters for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I was Mm -hmm. prepared for prison by the time I got there. And so in some respects, the adjustment would have been easier than it was for someone who, you know, hadn't been part of that lifestyle. Uh, Unfortunately... We've got terrible reoffending rates in New Zealand. You know, our prison system is completely broken, similar to the Australian system. We're a little bit worse than you in terms of that reoffending. And a big part of it is that people don't tend to experience the ingredients that I was lucky to have in my life that enabled me to change. I certainly know people who have gotten out and who, you know, live pro-social lives now, contributing tax-paying members, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And part of that, you know, part of that's driven by, you know, factors relating to neurology. Like there are a lot of people in prison who have mental health issues, who have um, fetal alcohol syndrome, who have other challenges in their way in that respect. Mm. But the key thing which really enabled me to change was that I had family support. You know, I didn't come from a family of criminals my parents were tax-paying members of society, and my father was a really supportive guy. He visited me nearly every weekend for over 10 years. That's probably the biggest difference between me and most people, is I had a parent like that who believed in me and who supported me. And he paid for my study out of his pension when I decided I wanted to study. Other people don't have that. That's the biggest difference. You know, like we, we love to have this narrative that you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but the reality is, yeah. is real success. You know, that's a team effort. That's about connection with other people. It's about that ability to actually seek help from others, to be vulnerable in that respect yeah. and to accept that. And I was lucky that I had I had help. I really did. I mean, mm. I, I only understand mm. how hard it must have been for him as well now that I'm a parent myself. In the early years yeah. of imprisonment, he would come and visit me and I would be on non-contact visits through glass booths because I was too high security for physical contact with civilians. I'd often have black eyes, broken nose, stuff like that from getting attacked, getting into fights. He would have to walk away from those visits knowing there was nothing he could do to keep me safe and there was no end in sight for this. It must have been so bloody hard for him. You know, I, I'm, Was he around to see you turn your life around yeah, like this? Yeah, and look, to be honest with you, probably my biggest achievement in life you know, um, with dad is that I'm not the son he worries about anymore. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing. Paul, Paul, I'd like to go into the turning point, if I can use that phrase. So you're in there, um, you've had that kind of introduction and welcoming committee. Is it in the first week? Is it in the first month? Is it in the last year? At what point does it start to become a personal transformation? Yeah. And, you know, is it a day that the light bulb went off or did it slowly come on? Walk us through that a little bit because I think we've got a lot of people listening 
who have been through trauma themselves or have a family member, um, and I'm sure they'll be thinking about it in a sort of analogy way about perhaps method that they could bring to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so look, things got a lot worse from that point. I ended up in our toughest maximum security prison as soon as I was 20. Uh, I was considered a management problem within the prison system as a teenager, and part of that was I didn't have a great sense of hope because this seemed like forever for me. And, you know, I'd been given this label. Uh, and, you know, let's just feel the weight of this word, okay? I'm reluctant to even say this, but this is the reality. Mm. I was a convicted murderer. I just want you to feel the weight of that, okay? And, mm. you know, yeah. for me, I was like, like a lot of people, it's always easier to blame everyone else rather than accept responsibility for your own actions. So when I went in there, I was like, well, I was attacked in my home. You know, oh, I was this. I had all of these great rationales for why this wasn't my fault. So when I was given that murder label, you know, it was like, right, you want to say I'm a bad person? Okay, you know, I will make sure that I do everything within my power to live up to that expectation of me. And um, in those early years, I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is a really interesting punishment because it's literally intended to break you into submission to be bad enough that you'll go, I will not repeat that behavior. Over the length of my sentence, I spent approximately 10 months in solitary confinement. Uh, about three months was the longest stretch I did, and that is a long time. And mm -hmm. as a result of all of this, I knew as soon as I turned 20, I would be sent to our toughest maximum security prison. They didn't like sending teenagers there because it's too violent and predatory a gang environment. But as soon as I turned 20, I was on the bus up there. Up until this point, I was doing nothing positive. My only focus, the only thing that gave me hope, actually, at that point, was the prospect of escape. I was just absolutely committed to escaping the prison and to, to going out and to try and, you know, have, have a taste of freedom. And that kept me going. Fortunately, I was high enough security where, you know, that wasn't really a possibility for me at the time, realistically, but it kept me going. I was then moved to maximum security prison. And if I thought, you know, my original experience of imprisonment was hard, you know, that was nothing compared to this. It was such mm. a terrible environment. I spent every day waiting to get attacked. You know, I was attacked once by a gang member in the yard with a weight bar, and it was just such a stressful environment because there's no getting away from it either. It's just constant. Mm. You know, like when we talk about trauma, you know, you, you talk about is it acute trauma or like a one-off experience, is it chronic trauma? Like, say, for example, living in a prison environment or, you know, witnessing domestic violence being part of that. Or is it sort of complex where you've got multiple and varied types of trauma getting experienced over time? And prison is a really chronically traumatic environment. And it was when I was in maximum security prison that I actually I, I started to get unsettled and to be a bit unsure about who I was supposed to be. I had spent my whole life growing up thinking I was supposed to be some kind of tough guy who would always escalate violence to dominate, who would never back down. And when I came across people who had reached the pinnacle of achievement in terms of that goal, I didn't find them inspiring. I found them unsettling. And so that was the context in which change could occur. This unsettled mm. feeling I'd had that maybe I wasn't on the right path. Maybe this wasn't the thing for me. And then I was lucky enough to be encouraged to study. And the reason I was... So who encouraged you to study? Well, who, who stepped in and said, 
Why don't you do a degree? Well, I tell you, this is this is what's interesting. I've been encouraged prior to that by people, but it was people who I didn't relate to. There were a couple of people mm. who said to me, oh, you should make use of your time while you're in prison study. But I didn't relate to them. The person who really got through for me was one of New Zealand's most accomplished safe crackers. And because I really admired them professionally. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Absolutely. They were that is so funny. Yeah, they were part of what was called the Hole in the Wall Gang, which was our most notorious organised crime group in New Zealand during the sort of 90s and the, the 2000s. And I really admired them in terms of what they did professionally because, remember, my whole life had been a criminal lifestyle to that point. And so when yeah. that person encouraged me, that landed in a way that other people who I didn't connect with just couldn't. And... Mm. I started studying, and I didn't start with good intentions. This is a really good thing to know. Often we think that, oh, you know, you need to be clear in your motives and your intentions before you're able to make change. That's a load of rubbish. You need to just start taking the steps, the small steps that provide you with a different path forward. So I started studying, and look, my motives weren't good. It was more about being able to predict attacks from other people in prison, that sort of stuff. Uh, but the original word for educate means to lead out of, to lead out of the darkness of your own ignorance. And over time, that's what education did for me. It's when I realized, oh, my gosh, there's all this other stuff out there in this world. This world is way bigger than I thought it was. And so that's an important thing to know for people who are listening around change. It's not about one moment. It's not about one decision. It's about all these small steps you take that take you a long way over time. And in fact, you go on. And I was going to say for all those coaches and consultants out there, what I'm hearing in your story too is to really be that person who helps to transform others. The power of connection and rapport and being able to, you know, um, have some sort of impact on, on someone. You know, that, that stuff we talk about theoretically so much, but it's so interesting to hear the power of that in your real experience. Yeah, look, uh, 100%. And I remember when I first started coaching people, you know, and I'd I'd be using all the the genus reports and that and the models and the approaches there, and I used to have this idea that I was supposed to be able to adapt my style to be effective with any of the coaches I worked with. But as a function of maturity and experience, you realise, hey, there are just some people who I have way greater impact with than others, And Mm. I think you get better at realising that and realising that, hey, you don't need to be all things to all people. It's more about being self-aware enough to recognise who you can have that impact with and being able to maximise your opportunity with those people. At least that's my experience Mm. of it. Mm. But also as well, you know, that whole idea that, you know, it, it does require just a focus on the small things. And another thing I learned through my experience is that, you know, it really is that old old idea of progress, not perfection, of getting better, not being good. You know, I had relapses in prison. I was I was lucky. I found study. I found education. And by the way, I had never felt any connection with education growing up. I'd been held back a year in school. I had basically not attended any sort of secondary school. Yet I started studying and I realized that my brain was like the rest of my body. The more I exercised it, the stronger it got and the easier it was to use. And I just needed to find stuff I was interested in, and that would radically transform my experience of learning. And so I embarked on that journey, and 
I had no idea where it would take me. I mean, like, for example, you know, you asked earlier on, had I heard of genius and emotional intelligence when I was in prison? No, no, I hadn't. You know, like I studied psychology. I was two years into my doctorate before I left, and I had done a lot in my doctorate focusing on emotional stability and other things that relate to emotional intelligence. But I hadn't really come across the concept or the idea. And mm. also a lot of the things that I did during my imprisonment, which has enabled me to really transform and have a better life now, I can understand in retrospect based on my knowledge of emotional intelligence and how things operate now. But at the time, some of that was just good fortune and some of that good fortune yeah. was some of my natural tendencies and dispositions. Let me give you an example, right? So one of the things that we know is that when you experience stress and trauma and challenge, if you see it as a challenge to be embraced, if you see it as something that will have positive elements in it for you, that it's worthwhile in some way, then that activates the approach system in your brain. And it's far more likely that you're going to have a lot of dopamine released. And of course, dopamine is about happiness with what you can get. It's about mood, motivation and movement, the pursuit of reward. But what we also know is that when that dopamine's released, it makes it far easier to cope with the stress and the pressure you're under because it becomes a worthwhile goal that you're focused on. And when you experience that same stress and pressure, but instead you just see it as something you have to endure, something where you have no empowered ability to make choices or to take action, that there's nothing worthwhile about it, it's far more likely to activate that avoid system in your brain, the amygdala, all of that stuff, and result in negative outcomes. Now, when I used to get put in solitary confinement, a lot of people have long-term mental health um, consequences as a result of solitary confinement. It's well documented. But I was lucky that I was a belligerent person. Now, how did that make me lucky? It meant that when I was put in solitary confinement, instead of just going, oh, no, this is terrible. I just need to get through this. My attitude was, I'll take whatever you've got for me. You will not break me. And I saw it as something where I was up for the challenge and that I would just, with just total belligerence, refuse to be broken as a result of their attempt to do so. And as a result of that, what I now know is that was activating the dopamine and the approach system in my brain and stopping me from experiencing some of those more negative consequences. But it's a great insight to have, right, that when times are hard, if you can conceptualize it as a challenge to embrace, not a threat to be avoided, you will radically transform your ability to cope with it, but also what you get out the other end of it. Mm. What I'm hearing too is the psychologist sitting here with you which I think might interest the, the coaches and consultants listening, is you're talking a lot really about the power of mindset. And I think, you know, we can help accelerate the transformation of others if we ask those questions that help bring a different mindset and a different perspective to stress, trauma, whatever that's going on for someone, number one. And I know that's very simple stuff that we all talk about. But the other great thing that I'm kind of getting a feel for is what that environment was doing, Paul. Really, it was what I call exercising your emotional system. It might not have been emotions that were necessary necessarily positive although they were you know do you know what i mean like we talk about if you really want to develop your emotional self-awareness actually lean into situations that create different emotions for you because in doing so you learn more about your emotions where they show up in your body how they affect the way you think yeah. 
uh, and so on. And I, I, I just, I don't know if that was coming to you at the time, but that's what I'm kind of also hearing in your story. Yeah, it's interesting, eh, Ben? It's really bloody interesting how this stuff works. Like, when I think of it, like, if I think of it from an emotional intelligence perspective, I think what prison did for me was it gave me a pressure cooker environment where I could massively ramp up my emotional management, my resilience, mm-hmm. my ability to cope, and, you know, also my awareness of myself in many respects and, and my authenticity because it's very self-focused, it's very individual, and it tests you in ways that you can't, you just can't experience if you're just having a normal life sitting on the couch. Although that said, I've got to tell you this, I came out of prison thinking I was capable of coping with whatever life threw at me, right, anything that would come my way. But what I didn't realize is I developed this really lopsided capacity in emotional intelligence. My self-management was great, but my ability to positively influence others and my emotional awareness of other people was not practiced at all because prison is such an environment where you have to, you know, really dial down and repress things like empathy in order to survive because it's such a harsh environment and you have to not engage with others in in a way that makes you vulnerable at all. So I got out and I had this great individualized capacity to cope, but I was really average at some of those other areas. And I've got to tell you, like a, a real journey for me, and I think this is for a lot of people when it comes to their emotional intelligence, is that being strong in one area sometimes comes at the expense of some of those other areas. And I get this with leaders a lot, right? You can have these super resilient, great at managing their emotions leaders who lack empathy towards other people and who are kind of like, why are the wheels coming off you? I don't feel that. Paul, did that did that insight come to you from a practiced, self-reflective practice? Did it come from a partner who said, hey, you're really good with yourself, but you're not good with me? Where did that insight come from? A snap on the partner piece, Ben. You know, and I think this is this is a key one. I thought I had achieved this mm. this pinnacle of achievement in the sense that the world could throw at me whatever it liked. But unfortunately, you know, the tactic that I had really built around that was not a high level of emotional connection and engagement with myself. I had done what a lot of people do. And that is I had gotten more resilient. I got better at the emotional management piece by actually really suppressing and dialing down the emotional self-awareness piece. If I just bottle that stuff up enough, you know, if I just disconnect from that enough, then I don't have to deal with anything. I build up walls around myself. And the walls help protect you from the world, but they also keep other people out. And what I found is I was in relationships and I got feedback. For example, I I had a a partner who, who you might have met as well. She used to work for opera, who was a psychologist, And, you know, she said to me, oh, you know, like, I I feel like you don't need me in the relationship. And I was like, well, of course I don't need you. And I just didn't realize that actually that wasn't a good thing. And, you know, it wasn't through her, but it was through the relationship with my wife, Marianne now, who has honestly more positively changed me and influenced me than anyone else I've ever come across. And it really was that recognizing that, in order to get better at that positive influence on others, at that whole ability to connect with others in a meaningful way, I needed to rejig some of the strategies that I had learned to be resilient to enable myself to still be vulnerable and to lower those walls 
And that was only post-prison that I learned. And it was through relationships because relationships are a great motivator and also a, a reality check, eh? I mean, gee. Yeah, mm. absolutely. What you're also reminding me of, though, I think is in my own early days of being a coach and consultant, um, I would sit down with the individuals and do a lot of work with them on what they were going to do differently. Mm. What I failed to do was also inspire them to engage somebody to help them in that journey. So, you know, I think a lot of coaching back in the early 2000s was very individual focused, whereas now, at least for myself, you know, that one of the first questions uh, that comes along the way in, in coaching, I think, is, okay, so you're going to try and be more empathetic, more aware of others, have a more positive influence. Who are you actually going to do that with? Who are you going to go to and say, I need to be more empathetic, help me with that. Because as your coach, mm. I can sit here with you for once a week or once a month or whatever, but you need somebody who's there with you once a day or every hour who can say, hey, you're a bit defensive in that meeting or, gee, you didn't read the room really well and how they were feeling about what you were presenting to them. I don't know if that makes sense or aligns with what we're talking about oh, here. Oh, 100%. But engaging other people in your development is so important, I think, to that personal transformation journey that we're talking about here. And we hear it all along the way in your story, your dad visiting you every week in prison um, and being that support person, that person of influence, the safe cracker. And now we hear outside of the prison that this continues, but it's the women in your life that yeah. are starting to help you reflect more into these other areas for development. But, but also I think a big thing there, right, which is, is completely consistent with what you're saying, is just that it, it has to be incremental. You know, like the difference between theory and application is so big. So when I came out of prison, I was two years into my doctorate. I'd done my master's, all this sort of stuff. I understood the theory of this stuff. When I first did my genos, you know, practitioner training and that, I understood the theory of this stuff. But understanding the theory versus applying this stuff in a regular way in your life is radically different, eh? It really is. Absolutely. I think one of the things as well on that continuous sort of opportunity to engage is that you have to have enough skin in the game as well, right? Like it has to matter to you enough. And that's why for me, for example, I think, you know, my marriage and being a parent, oh, my gosh, you want to know? You want to know if you're tough or not, eh? I mean, like honestly, I came out of maximum security prison, all this sort of stuff, thinking I was tough, thinking I could manage whatever came my way. Now I fall apart when the kids won't go to bed, won't get their shoes on in the morning. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm. other people. Oh yeah, we know it well, don't we, Marie? Oh yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> true though. I, I think it's like one of those things where you know, like relationships are hard, and that's another point I want to make. One of the most important sort of ideas that I have which is so consistent with having an effective life, is the idea that it's not supposed to be easy. You know, it's the same with relationships. You get out what you put into them. It's the same in terms of your professional competence, right, and the areas that matter to you. You know, just going with what's easy and expecting to be good straight away, it's just not the way it works. And it's not the way to meaning, eh, and purpose. Pursuit of potential mm -hmm. in the areas that matter to you. That's something where I've always been really lucky. I've had a lot of energy and a lot of drive to be good at what matters to me. The only difference really is, is that I placed value on the wrong things when I was younger. I didn't really mm -hmm. understand what that path to meaning and satisfaction was, the authentic path for me, whereas now I have a much better grasp of that. 
And I, I, I'll tell you this right now, you know, like the most important roles in my life now, husband and father, and I fail to be who I want to be on a daily basis, not a weekly basis, a daily basis. But I have that mindset that those failures are my opportunities to reflect, to learn and grow and to be able to come back better tomorrow. And it's that incremental progress. And that was the thing about prison for me as well and change in general. You know, you can have a, a, a transformative experience, but it's those small incremental steps that really take you to a different place. There's, there's no getting around that. Yeah. And celebrating them too and recognising that, you know, even though I've taken a step that's small, that tiny step is something different to what I did yesterday and that's a big deal because change, that taking that tiny step is actually very difficult. It's, it's not easy. So celebrating the, the, the journey, not yeah. just when you get to that destination, which, by the way, changes constantly anyway. Yeah, and look, I love that. I remember like um, coming across that in terms of some of the uh, Genos coaching training around helping people focus on how far they've already come rather than how far they have to go in terms of creating mm. a bit more of that motivation. Oh, look, you're succeeding yeah. 15% of the time. That's awesome. You know, that's you're already 15% of the way there. It's just that little next step to move you a little bit further rather than sort of focusing on that 85% gap from where you might like to be. And it is that ability to recognise yeah. that and to appreciate that stuff. I can see, Paul, why um, you're so uh, – popular and in demand for speaking opportunities and uh, facilitation and why your books have done so well. You have experienced um, EI in the most extreme circumstance, you know, as a, as a parent and a friend and a sister, like when, when I've had people come to me in really bad situations and I go, look, it could be worse you are that worse. It could be what Look at Paul is what I'm going to say now, you know. So I've always struggled to find a good example of it could be worse and you could, you know, under worse people have turned things around. But you have, but you know, irony, and I think right? about. But here's the irony. Like I hear that from people a lot of the time. And to be honest, like, you know, like if I do a keynote and that, hey, for some people it's kind of like light entertainment, right? For some people it's like an interesting story. For some people they'll walk away going, oh, geez, actually my struggles aren't as bad as that guy had. For other people mm -hmm. I'll say just the thing that just influences them at the right way at the right time. But the reality is when people say to me what you've just said, like, oh, I'm the example of it could be worse, I bloody consider my life to have been blessed. That's the irony. Like <laughs> I think about it. Well, yeah, the, 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 turn, the turning point, yes. But no, I would the argue point that the whole thing. Because the whole bit. I yeah. have a reference. It's all about your reference point, right? Yeah, that's like, true. Say, for example, you know, like I, I have so many people who I've come across and had in my life who have had such worse experiences than me that I kind of look at it and I feel like almost like a little bit guilty about being held up as an example of change in that because I go, well, my life was so good compared to so many of the other examples yeah. of people I know. Mm. And, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's all about your benchmark and, and mental toughness. I do quite a bit of work in the um, with the Defence Force, who I love, 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 especially special forces there, but also in sports with uh, elite performers. And when you talk about mental toughness, that capacity to really cope under pressure, you know, one of the most important factors is what's your previous benchmark for misery and suffering? Because that enables you to cope more effectively and that's one of the great things yeah. for me. When I'm struggling now, you know, I'm able to go, yeah. well, this isn't as bad as worrying about getting stabbed in B-block. 
you know, <laughs> this isn't as bad as that situation. And it gives me perspective. Yeah. But that's one of the things, and that's one of the interesting things about hardship and trauma, right? When you're going through it, you want to go, this is an awesome learning opportunity for me. And that's a big difference between post-traumatic stress disorder versus post-traumatic growth, where the trauma has mm-hmm. been equally problematic for people at the time. But the people who come out the other end of it with post-traumatic growth are the ones who go, I learned something valuable from that about myself and about what matters. And that enables them to feel better off as a result of the experience, even though it sucked massively at the time. So it's that ability to go, what's the learning here? What's the value in this? And the value in misery and suffering is to go, well, this is a good benchmark for how hard things can be in the future that will enable me to be more grateful for how things are now, because it will pass, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. What I'm really hearing a lot of in in this journey is mindset, and I know we've mentioned and talked about that word before, Um, perspective and perspective taking. I think being able to see something, the positives and the negatives for it. But the other one that we haven't mentioned, and maybe there's nothing to say around it, the word that I wrote down that sort of keeps coming to me is identity. Nice. You know, like it was a, to some extent, perhaps even a positive experience in prison because it, as you said, as you went in, that as an 18-year-old, you knew everyone there. It was actually consistent with your identity. Correct. That identity changed, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know whether we want to talk about identity. So it's identity, because but it's just such – it's another one, isn't it? That's you've sort nailed of it, though, Ben. You've nailed it. It's like this idea, and, and you know, like our, our mutual friend and massive mentor for me, Dr. Paul Inglet, you know, like I remember reading mm. about this in, in his book. But – He's talking about if you can't visualize what your future might look like and how it might be different and who you might be, then you're not going to be able to live into that. And for me, it was my identity shift from being, you know, this tough guy who I thought I was supposed to be to shifting my identity to someone who was, well, let's use the term like more of a scholar, where my focus and identity became study and learning, and knowing stuff. We all need to feel seen and valued. We all need to feel we have an identity that enables us to feel seen and valued, accepted by other people. And for me, it was the shift in the identity which was crucial, because now I'm in a situation where I go, what would a person like the person I want to be do in this situation? How would they respond? And I'll tell you this right now, mindset is crucial there, right? Because mindset's all about that sense of identity. For example, I have the mindset and the identity of myself as someone who's prepared to embrace tough challenges. So when I find myself in those situations and I go, what path do I take here? I take the path, which is not the easy one. I take the path, which is the harder one because I'm up for the challenge because that's my sense of identity. Let me give you an example. You know, my natural default, emotional default, and that was another thing I learned from you, Ben, is around the emotional defaults versus who you aspire to be. My emotional default is to pull a massive sulk a lot of the time at home. You know, <laughs> when, when I, and this will be unrelatable to anyone in a long-term relationship, but sometimes I feel misunderstood or underappreciated, right? And my default is to pull a sulk. But my identity of myself is someone who takes ownership and does what's right rather than what's easy. So instead, I try to communicate and I, tell, I try to go, hey, what's the story I'm telling myself here? You know, 
what, how could that be different and what actions can I take to resolve this situation? But remember this, I'm not nailing it 100% of the time, right? Let's go back to that. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. We're all human at the end of the day. But that identity gives you the anchor to cast forward into the future and pull you along, right? Because that's who you're trying mm. to grow into. And I think that's so crucial, Ben. Who is that person that you want to grow into and what decisions move you in that direction rather than further away from being that person? Thank you so much, Paul, for coming on the show. It's been so fun getting to know you and super insightful. Thank you for sharing your story. An absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul. See you next time.